Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I am your host, David Agronoff. This is a very special episode. I know I always say that, but it is a special episode because I'm turning the tables on somebody who has interviewed me before for their podcast. And yes, I'm. you know you're a real podcast when you get interviewed by other podcasters, right? <laughs> this is a very critically acclaimed podcast and one of my favorites. Rose Eveleth is the host of the flash forward podcast which is uh one of my favorites in my feed and we're gonna eventually talk about flash forward and what it is but rose um is a person that i just want to get to know more too and i want my listeners to get to know so you can eventually figure out you know why i am co-signing this podcast why i want you to run out and listen to it so rose welcome to postcards from a dying world thanks for having me i'm excited you know, this, I debated too whether to invite you to cover a Philip K. Dick, a Philip K. Dick book on dickheads, but we're here, and I do want to talk about your relationship to the future and to futurology. But let's start with where you grew up and how you got into these things. Were you always a science fiction fan? Yeah, yeah. My dad is a huge sci-fi fantasy geek, always has been. So grew up just reading all of his books. Um, Both my parents are scientists, so I thought I would be a scientist. And so I was very into like, you know, the science and the science fiction and the fantasy. And I always joke that I was like too much of a nerd to read Harry Potter. Harry Potter came out like when I was the right age for Harry Potter. Like, you know, everybody I knew was reading it. I was in the middle of the Earthsea trilogy and I was like, but this is so much better. (laughs) And I was like, because I was like too nerdy to be into Harry Potter, which is sort of saying something, I suppose. Um, And so, yeah, I always grew up reading those books. I thought I would be a scientist. Um, I went through school to be a scientist uh, and then kind of was very lucky to do a lot of research as an undergrad, kind of get a job in a lab, kind of seeing what that was like. And it became clear that doing the science was probably not the thing that I wanted to do. And so sort of shifted into journalism, science journalism, covering science, covering technology, covering the future, um, which is a great place to kind of get into science fiction sounding concepts that are real in science and then kind of like into this world of looking at the future. Well, what I really like about your podcast is it's both science fiction and science fact at the same time. And we'll, we'll get back into that, but I'm going to drill down because my listeners are nerds and they, they want to know what kinds of books were on the shelf, but also I'm interested, you know, what city did you grow up in? Were your parents, were your parents professors or academics in science? So I grew up in New Jersey, in central New Jersey. Uh, My dad worked for a drug company and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Before that, she worked in dermatology as like a kind of like lab manager, kind of like get making sure all of the Petri dishes were ordered and like all the sort of like systems worked. And so that sort of was their background. And 
probably the first, well, I remember my, my mom always tells the story. I refused to learn how to read as a kid. I just like did, had no interest in learning because, and they were very worried. And I remember this distinctly. And I feel like I had a very good reason for it, which was that we were in the middle of them reading the Hobbit to me. And I was like, well, if I learn to read, you're going to stop reading to me. And we're in the middle of the Hobbit and I don't want to, I want to know what happens. And so I, for uh, a long time, refused to learn to read. And then my parents finally got me those like hooked on phonics tapes, which I hated so much that I was like, fine, I will learn how to read. Um, which is sort of like a good encapsulation of my personality, I think in general, <laughs> but uh, so yeah. The Hobbit was an early one. They were reading it to you, but, yes. and you had these books on the shelf. And the reason why I ask is because the, the, a lot of my listeners are the type of people who, when they see a picture or a video of somebody's shelves, they zoom in and they want to see what's on the shelves, you know, and I do that all the time. I'm wondering what, what kind of stuff were, were you reading as a kid that your parents were dropping? You said, you mentioned Earthsea and that's great because Le Guin is, is important. But what other stuff were you reading back then in those formative years? Yeah, I feel like Earthsea was the one where I was like, oh, I mean, I read Lord of the Rings as a kid because we Mm. did The Hobbit and I was like, okay, then you read The Lord of the Rings. I feel like there was, um, do you know the Hardy Brothers series uh, Mm -hmm. that like has a lot of like weird inventions and things like that? I would say my dad is a huge Philip K. Dick fan, actually. So early on read a lot of those the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy was also like a one that i really loved as a kid because it's like that got that like good irreverent humor i'm sure i did not get a lot of the jokes now that i've reread it as an adult and i'm like oh yeah i had no idea what some of this meant um i distinctly remember ring world being a one that i read early on that like is not appropriate for children really (laughs) (laughs) but i loved as a kid and again like i definitely did not understand like half of the jokes in that book those are some of the early ones I remember distinctly. Um, we did have a lot of Ursula K. Le Guin in the house. So I feel like I read a lot of those mm-hmm. books. And then I was really into Animorphs. That was like one that was coming out, like was more recent, was coming out when I was a kid. And that I was very, very into. Yeah, that's funny too. Cause you mentioned the whole, like being into Earthsea, not Harry Potter. For me, I'm just a little bit older. So I was already an adult when Harry Potter came out. So you know, whenever people are like, I, I always like, that's a, a nerd thing I don't get into because I, it, it was, I was too early. I was a Star Wars and Star Trek kid, you know, didn't get into those things, but I certainly appreciate the role that Harry Potter played in getting kids reading for sure. But, uh, okay. So when you, when you went to college, did you seek out something that they kind of foresaw your future futurologist ways or were you studying something else in college no i really um thought i would be a marine biologist i love the ocean i love scuba diving i love like particularly like deep sea creatures that are just so weird and like i think i was like coming into sort of like actually thinking about what I wanted to do with my life when we really were starting to put the first submarines down into like truly deep ocean and getting footage back of squids and these like really incredible deep sea creatures that we couldn't see before. When I was 12, I demanded that I get scuba certified and my parents had to find a place that would scuba certify a 12 year old in like suburban New Jersey, which is like not that easy to find. So and you were so, serious about it. You were very serious. Yes. I was like, I am going to be the Jane Goodall of the sea. That was like my whole like 
thing, my life plan. So I went to college uh, at UC San Diego, actually. Um, and I studied like environmental science, genetics. And oh. I was like, I'm going to go out on boats, right? Because they have a really amazing, you know, Scripps Institute of Oceanography is there. They have this amazing program there. Um, and that's actually where I worked when I was able to get when I was able to work as an undergrad, I was a apprentice curator at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography um, in the Pelagic Invertebrates Collection, which is where all the like weird stuff that floats in the water that doesn't like walk on the ground um, is preserved. And so I was very into that. I thought that would be what I would do. So I wasn't at all into like tech or sort of the future as it's commonly kind of defined. I liked reading science fiction, but even the science fiction I liked I was never a big hard sci-fi fan, like never a huge Heinlein fan, never really into like space operas that much. I actually wasn't even really a Star Trek fan for a long time because I was much more into like, I liked the Sparrow and I liked like the kind of like anthropological Ursula K. Le Guin kind of stories or Octavia Butler kind of like more about the relationships and kind of the social elements than the like, how does the spaceship work? Um, and so I didn't think of myself as a tech person at all. And even when I went to grad school for journalism, I went to a grad program that is specifically for science journalism. And I was like, I'm going to cover the environment. I'm going to write about ecology. Um, and I just sort of like, honestly lucked into covering the future because when you first start out, especially cause I was a freelancer when I first started out after I graduated from grad school, you just say yes to any assignment, right? Like anything that anybody asks you to do, you're like, yes, I will, I will do that for money. And so I got a bunch of assignments from popular science to cover these um, really cool high-tech prosthetic hands that are like really sci-fi looking, right? Like bionic hands, they like look really cool. You know, they've got that very sci-fi element to them. Covering that is actually what got me into covering the future because I talked to all the people who invented those hands. And then I started talking to people who use them. And there was a huge gap between those two experiences, right? The people who use them were like, yes, they look really cool, but like, they kind of suck, right? Like they don't really work that well. They take forever to learn how to use. And especially if you live in a place in the country that isn't close by to uh, an office that can fix them, you end up like, if it breaks, you're kind of screwed. You're not allowed to fix them yourself um, because you'll avoid the warranty. Um, and so you ended up, I, I just saw this like disconnect between the like, whoa, this is amazing, high tech, sci-fi. It's right out of a sci-fi story, blah, blah, blah. With the actual lived experience of the people who were living in this supposed future. And so I was like, oh, this is really interesting that there's this kind of gap. And that's kind of how I wound up being this like futurologist looking at the ways that people talk about the future. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and you you found a really cool niche too because as far as it, podcasts go, like something that that looks and and into the future and says like uh, this is a possible way that things could go. I you know as soon it's funny because the first time I ever heard of your podcast was you contacting me to be on the show. So then when I listened when I went back and listened to it, I was completely sold out automatically, but. We'll get back into that in a little bit, but when you were starting off, like what, what era of podcasts was this? And because how podcasts happen changes over time, right? So yes, you were early adopter, right? Pre-serial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes. So I 
started making podcasts for other people first. Cause again, like freelancer, I will do anything. Um, and so I worked a little bit at radio lab. I worked a little bit at the New York times science podcast, and then wanted to make my own show partnered up with, uh, IO nine and Gizmodo, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. That was for the first season of the show to kind of like test it out. And that was how it started it was literally Annalie Newitz, who's an incredible science fiction writer in their own right, contacted me and was like, Hey, you know, do you want to make a podcast? We're trying to experiment with podcasts here. We'd love if you would do one. And I was like, hell yeah. And so we talked about a couple of ideas and agreed that the flash forward one was the one that we were both most excited about. And so the first season of flash forward actually lived on IO9 and Gizmodo at Gawker. Mm. Um, and then Gawker had an incident with a wrestler that some people may or may not be familiar with right? <laughs> um, in which Hulk Hogan sued them out of existence. That happened like right at the end of my first season. And so I'd sort of like backed away slowly and like took the show independent from there. Yeah. At that point, it becomes much more your baby and the thing that yeah that you can kind of craft to be in, in your style and, and what you want to do. And, and really, I think there's, a, I mean, it's been a long time since I listened to the first season because I listened to it years very ago. Very different. It's very different, but, and so over time, you kind of developed your own style and your own thing. Now, when I said that, well, before we get into what that style is, starting under the umbrella of a network and going independent, it was more kind of a decision that was forced upon you, but I'm sure you're glad you did it, right? Like, what are the benefits of being independent, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it was a really good time to go independent, frankly. You know, wouldn't have been my, like, if they had renewed it for another season at Gizmodo or io9, I would have absolutely said yes, probably. I probably would have asked for a little bit more money. <laughs> but like, you know, it was at the time when, you know, I was, again, like I was a freelancer. I was just starting out being able to be under a masthead like that was really helpful. Um, but in hindsight, it was actually a really good time to go independent because it was at a time when podcasting had was sort of really becoming popular again after kind of like being popular a couple of years before and then fading and then kind of coming back. It was also at a time when there were a bunch of independent podcasts who were kind of making it work. So like, you know, Welcome to Night Vale. And there were a couple of shows that I could kind of look to and be like, oh, wow, they're doing it. Maybe I could do it too. The benefits is that I own it, right? Like I own a hundred percent of the show. Um, they can't like, no one can fire me and replace me with a different host. Um, right. you know, like I, if I want to, you know, sell the rights to an episode to be adapted into television, or if I want to myself take a premise from one of the episodes and write a short story or write a novel or whatever, I can do that. I own all the IP. The downside is that no one is selling, like no one is working for me to like make the show good. The budget comes from, you know, direct support and ads. Like, you know, it's scrappier, right? The budget's a lot smaller than if like Gimlet were to acquire the show. Um, but if they were to do that, then they would own it and they could do whatever they want with it. So it's kind of that, like, you know, the trade-off. And you, and you have gone to other media with like, for example, doing a book and, and things mm -hmm. like that. So, so it is important that you, that, that you own and, and control it because, and, and, and the controlling the IP thing is underrated because um, we've seen, for example, and you mentioned podcasts pre-serial, post-serial is, is a different thing because that's the first, I think, podcast to really become almost household name. And like a lot of people who weren't listening to podcasts started like, okay, now I need a podcast. So to replace that serial, you know, thing. So I do think that there's a pre and post serial. I mean, 
And that's what you were trying to say, right? In, in that kind or... of, yeah. I mean, it's sort of a joke. Like, I think a lot of podcasters hate the idea that like serial is what made podcasting, right? Because like that's not totally true, but I like it is a hundred percent true that serial was a huge moment for podcasting, mm-hmm. and I think like it is both over and undercredited sometimes in that sense, where it's like, yeah, totally. it, like. Kim Kardashian knew what serial was. Kim Kardashian had never heard of a podcast before that. You know what I mean? Like there's right. like, there is a certain level of awareness that it really did make a difference. Well, and, and it's okay to, I certainly was listening to podcasts before serial, but it's just that, you know, things like I am having conversations with my sister where she's like literally saying, do you know of another serial or something that that's like serial, you know, and, and then that changes the conversation, you know, a little bit. Of course, nine times out of 10, I'm, I'm going for weirder podcasts and, and then those recommendations don't go far, but whatever, I try. So, <laughs> you know, with the people who are into serial. So the original vision of Flash, on that note, <laughs> so when you're, when you're trying to get the vision of the show and now you have the freedom to kind of do your own thing. um, One thing that people who don't listen to flash forward might not understand is that what you do is you talk about, you pick a future, right? You explore a future. And the one that we're going to use mostly for an example, because it's the most recent episode that I've listened to is for example, you take a subject of what if everybody lived underground and then you explore the idea of, people living underground. I was a guest in an episode that was exploring the idea of the future without me, right? And, and doing these things. So you pick these concepts and then you kind of start with a science fiction where you do like a radio drama play or whatever. And then you get into talking to the experts and the people that are doing those things. Can you tell me about developing that format and, and why you chose to do that, that that particular balance of science fact and fiction? Yeah, it's funny. At the beginning of this, when I was first pitching these ideas to Annalie at um, Gizmodo, uh, I pitched three ideas actually about different things. And this was the one that was we were both most excited about. And the whole premise was like, what if we could do a little bit of a blend, do some science fiction, kind of radio drama, audio drama, fun thing, and then talk to experts. And to be totally honest at the beginning, the reasoning for it was that it sounded fun and I wanted to play around with form. I thought it would be kind of interesting. I didn't see anybody else doing anything like that. And like, I wanted to write some science fiction that sounded really fun to do. Um, Now I actually have a much more coherent kind of like worldview and pitch for why it's effective, um, which is the sort of idea that I mean, anybody who's read science fiction can attest to, I feel like I'm for this, I'm preaching to the choir, but sometimes when I'm talking to like scientists, I have to kind of explain like why there is value in mixing some fiction in with our sort of journalism or our science. And it is that like, Mm -hmm. as a journalist, it can be really hard to report on the future because it hasn't happened yet, which sounds very obvious, but like in journalism, largely what you're doing is saying like, Hey, here's this thing that's happening and here's how you understand it. And with the future, there's nowhere to go to see it, you know? there's no thing to show necessarily. And so being able to like put people in a position where through fiction, where they have to kind of imagine what they would do or what they might react to, how they might react or what what decisions they might make in that situation, like you do in any fiction, right? Like there are studies about the transport of nature of fiction and how it kind of helps you understand the world. Um, Being able to do that in concert with sort of real reporting and kind of the journalism, I think, I hope my, my sort of 
hope and thesis of the show basically is that that helps people get ready for the future because they're having to kind of tackle it in both ways. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's funny too, because, well, you know, Ray Bradbury was famous for saying it's not science fiction writers jobs to to predict the future. You know, a lot of times speaking as a science fiction writer um, and somebody who, who studies the form uh, pretty seriously through through uh, dickheads and all that. I, the best science fiction isn't trying to exactly like say this will be the future, but basically reflecting the ideas. And one of the reasons why I love out of date old science fiction is because if you read, for example, example, I just read um, an Anthony Boucher collection from of all of his World War II era science fiction horror right, that he wrote from 41 to 45. And there's these robot stories that are in there. Yeah, of course, there's parts I'm laughing at, like the, the, where the, you know, like the corporation with their private tube that takes them to the spaceport, right? To get a speculative idea of what the future looked like from the 40s perspective, 80 years later is amazing. It's really cool. And I will say this, and if there's anybody... There are some science fiction writers that were really good at predicting the future. Probably the best being John Bruner. I don't know if you've ever read any Bruner, but um, mm-hmm. Stand on Zanzibar, The Sheep Look Up, that that got a lot of the, well, in Shockwave Rider, he wrote Shockwave Rider, which basically predicted the internet, right? You know, 1972, doing this. And it's cool when it happens, but I don't think you worry about getting the future exactly right, right? You, you just, yeah. you're talking about the potential, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like, if you start to worry, and I think I think that probably the folks who get this right, I mean, I think I, I could be misremembering, but I believe William Gibson has talked about this a little bit in interviews where it's like, if you worry about trying to get it right, you're like, that's that's a recipe for just like paranoid disaster, right? Because it's like, you, yeah. you like that's not going to help you tell a good story. And it's also like, often not the point of a lot of science fiction. Um, And I think Gibson often gets it right. Like there's a lot of things in his books where you're like, oh, there it is, (laughs) there there it goes. Um, Or even like Brave New World, I find still like incredibly prescient about so many things um, in terms of just like biotechnology. But yes, I do not think about getting things right. I actually almost never worry that like, oh God, what if this doesn't happen? You know, like that's not the point of the show. In many ways, the point of the show is to really help people practice imagining futures and sort of like practice asking questions and thinking about things. So that way when, if there is a situation where something happens that is relevant to one of the episodes, people are ready for it and know the kinds of questions to ask. You know, sometimes we get them right. Like people will, there's the easiest one is the, we did a pandemic episode four and a half years ago now. Mm. Um, But like, that's the kind of thing where experts have been saying it's a matter of, you know, when and not if for forever. So it's not, particularly impressive to have gotten that right. But we've done other episodes where it's like, couldn't be more wrong, right? I did an episode at one point about what, you know, this is pre-Donald Trump being elected. What What's going to happen when like all of these people, teenagers who are like growing up online, have this pretty extensive documented history of like having bad opinions because that's what teenagers do and like say, like yeah. just having bad opinions. Like, will they be unelectable? We have an entire, like, how do we think about, you know, the future of, when is it, at what point do we decide that like something you said when you were a teenager is like 
you know, disqualifying for elected office. And then Donald Trump gets elected and it's like, oh, who cares? Apparently, like it doesn't matter, you know? And so like, there are things that we've gotten totally, totally wrong already. And I don't worry about it because I feel like it was still an interesting exercise to have to think about that. Mm -hmm. Well, it would be interesting to maybe go back and revisit those, especially the ones where you feel like how Rose was was right, now Rose was wrong kind of thing might be uh, a fun thing to do and fun for your listeners who remember all these episodes, right? And uh, no, I mean, I've experienced it as a science fiction writer too. There's several times where Vegan Revolution with Zombies, people have said to me, like, send me Humane Meat articles or articles about uh, Impossible Burgers where they're, you know, like the way they're advertising them is similar to things I had in the book, or I wrote a cli-fi novel a couple of years ago called Ring of Fire that is very much about wildfires. And it puts me in a hard position because I have a lot of people every time there's a new wildfire saying like, oh, there it is again. And I don't want to be the guy promoting the book like, hey, get your wildfire read on with my book, right? But, you know, it is what it is. And, and I feel like John Bruner in the 70s was probably the same way with pollution when he wrote The Sheep Look Up. Like he wasn't happy about it, about being right and being the silent spring of science fiction but you know it happens so let's talk a little bit about these doing these speculative radio plays and 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 that that are at the beginning now i admit i know some listeners of flash four they're not the the favorite part and they're not mine i like the 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 latter parts of the show a little bit more too but i don't skip them i know how much work you put into them and i also think that what you're doing is you're setting the stage for giving people an idea of of how it how this feature could be put in into work but i so what goes into that's got to be the hardest is that the hardest part of making an episode is doing that that radio play Sometimes yes. And sometimes no, like some of them are just like, oh yeah, like this is what we'll do. We'll do something, you know, or we have an idea already. And, you know, it's a little bit like of logistics of like getting the voice actors and sort of like doing the sound design or whatever. But for some episodes, that part feels like the easy part and the actual kind of like structure of who to talk to and what to touch about, touch on and how, what to keep and what to cut, right? Like we end up often leaving a lot on the cutting room floor in terms of just like people saying really interesting things that we, you know, the show is, it used to be uh, under 20 minutes in that first season. And now the show, I try to keep it under an hour. Um, So we have more time, but you know, we don't have unlimited time and there's often a thing that we just like can't get into. And so sometimes that's the hard part. And sometimes that's the easy part. It just sort of depends on the topic of the episode or if I have like a very clear idea for what I want that to be like. And then other times it's like, oh, how are we going to like, show this in drama form that like also makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. you can't see anything, which is very obvious to say about audio, but like there are certain situations where it's like, you don't want the characters to be like, ah, yes, here I am underground. You know, like you don't want them to like do too much cheesy. I mean, there's a little bit of that because sometimes we'll like try and lean into the kind of like cheesy old school radio play, but like you also don't want the character to just like announce like something very awkwardly to like get you to where you need to be. So figuring out how to show something in audio drama form in a short amount of time, usually they're under five minutes, that can be sometimes challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I'm not, I like, those parts of the show are fine. I just, for me, I, I the latter parts with the interviews, the interviews and the experts and specifically like, you know, and I was going to talk to you about the idea of, you know, you're, you're the voice of the show, right? 
you know, bringing your personality to, to the, to the show and those kinds of things. For example, like one of the things I like about the show is when your personality shows, when you're like, Hey, that's really neat. That's a cool thing. I'd like to talk about more, more of that. Maybe another episode, you know, those types of things are elements that I think give it a personal touch that, you know, it's like, Hey, this is a person just kind of nerding out about these, these topics. Like I'm, I'm enjoying to listen to, you know what I mean? So I didn't what, what, used to do that. So the first season was very, cause like I went to journalism school and in right. journalism school, you learn like you are a reporter. Like it is not about you. Like you are like, so just like the conduit of information, which is totally untrue. Even if you aren't making a very like person driven podcast, right? Like obje objectivity is fake. Like that's not a thing. No person is objective. That's like not how the world works. Everybody comes in with their ideas and their kind of like preconceived notions and their histories or whatever. Um, and I think journalism is getting better about recognizing that and not sort of like assuming that there is only one way or whatever. But the first season I was very like, I am just here to like present the information and like give you these interviews and not really say what I think and not really have kind of like a personality. And I sort of slowly grown into putting my opinion even in, in them. And for a while I was very uncomfortable doing that. Cause I was like, Oh, like I don't want any, I don't know. I just had to like hang up about it. But I do think that like, yeah, like how, if I think something is cool, like I'm going to say it's cool. Or if I think something is like bullshit, can I curse on this podcast? You can curse all you want. Excellent. Yeah. If I think something is like total bullshit, like I will say it. Like I'm not, I don't know. I feel like there are certain moments where like it does a better service to the listener to actually know like where I'm coming from or like know what my opinion is about something so that you can evaluate like whether you agree or disagree or like how to like think about the episode. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's funny too, because when you're, you're doing the, the kinds of podcasts where you're editing down and you're taking bits and pieces of interviews and, and using them, you get to kind of also choose how you shape the message a little bit as well. And it's funny because I, you know, just having been a guest on, on Flash Forward, I have one experience of like, you know, being in the full interview. And and I, I, I felt like one of the reasons why I felt really or was really into listening to your podcast and then this is a kind of inside baseball thing but I knew that only bits and pieces of my interview were going to be used and when we got done recording I had the thought to myself well we'll see how much my words get twisted how much actually gets used and will I look like an idiot will this person make me look like an idiot and I was a little nervous and what was great about the podcast is I felt totally comfortable I felt like I was represented. So now when I hear you interviewing other experts, just personally, I have a little bit more trust because I felt like, you know, I'm sure there were things that I was like, well, I wish, you know, I said this or that, and I wish that had come across, but I, I felt like I, I was represented well enough that now I have trust listening to you as, as an interviewer with other people. So I just want to but that's that so nice. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, I do try really hard to like, well, first of all, like I never cover anything where I'm like trying to make, like there are certain kinds of journalism where like, you're kind of trying to set somebody up to like say something or like, this is not investigative podcasting, right? You know what I mean? Right, like, I'm not right. trying to like, you know, get anybody into a position to like admit something that they shouldn't, you know, say or whatever. Um, and like, to me, it makes 
the show better if I make the guests sound as good as possible. Like I want people like, right, to, you right. know, to know that I'm like talking to people who know what they're talking about and have thought about this really deeply and like have interesting thoughts and all of that. But I hear you. I'm always really nervous when I get interviewed just cause like, I know, like, you know how the sausage is made. And like, I've worked on other shows where you do a lot more, like really yeah. trimming people down and like really kind of like massaging their tape mm-hmm. to like get to a thing. And so like, I'm always a little nervous when I get interviewed. So I totally get it. Like people would be like, oh God, how's this going to go? <laughs> well, and it's a specific thing in my particular situation. Cause I was representing vegans in this particular yes. episode. And, and I know we get twisted to look like jerks a lot, you know, even though I don't feel we are <laughs> like, I feel like a lot of times people want to be able to point to vegans and say like, well, that's why I'm not one of you because you guys are judgmental jerks or whatever. And so like a lot, so in that situation, like I was a little nervous about it. And what was great is I didn't feel like that happened. So, but anyways, it's not about that one topic. Let's talk about like, but a lot of what you do and it gets into this is that not everything is straight science either. There's a little bit of magical realism in some of your episodes, like a future, like what, what if we couldn't lie? What if, you know, so, so a lot of the topics are very scientific based, but some are just like almost pure fantasy. Like what if there was a future where, you know, I think that's the one that I use as an example is the, the couldn't lie one, which was a great episode by the way. Um, and so where, how do you choose the topics and, and, and pick things like that. And I should say some of my favorites, I love the environmental series you did last year, I think it was last year. That was great. Uh, I love asteroid mining was a great one. Smart cities. Um, you've done serious sex robot episodes. It's not just like, like to be goofy um, or to be exploitive or whatever. It was, it was very well handled. How do you, how do you pick topics? This is one of the nice things about being an independent show is that like, we just pick things that we're interested in. And like, if like, so now I work with a producer, Julia, who's amazing. Um, and if the two of us are like, Hey, I've been thinking about this thing. And like, what do you think? And like, if we're interested in it, then we'll do it. Right. Like, it's kind of nice. We get to do whatever we want in that sense. And so a lot of it is just, I think that the thing, the sweet spot for us for flash forward is like, an episode that has a little bit of science and tech in it where we can kind of be like, okay, e- even if it's to debunk the idea to be like for, so for, if we couldn't lie, we do a little bit of like, do lie detectors work? No. Right. Like, that's, you know, like why? And sort of how, how all that is. Right. We had um a recent episode about mind control and like, is mind control possible? And we do a lot of stuff about like the brain and science, but then we also talk a lot about the history of attempts to, you know, MK ultra and the actual real sort of like socioeconomic problems with like the ways that we incarcerate people in the United States and stuff like that. Um, and so like for us there, the sweet spot is something where there's an interesting and surprising ripple effect. And so it doesn't really have to be, I mean, the first season, I think maybe the first episode, maybe the second episode of the show ever was what would happen if space pirates dragged a second moon to earth and the earth suddenly had two moons, which like is probably not going to happen, but like kind of lets us talk about a bunch of cool things. And so 
really like the unsatisfying answer of how we pick episodes is like things that we think would be interesting and that like we get interested in. We're doing an episode coming up about uh, a sort of legal precedent around what would happen if the entire world adopted this sort of like up and coming legal idea of places as people. So environmental personhood Mm -hmm. as kind of like a legal thing, which I'm sure you've like read about probably as well for animals as a thing that people are talking about in terms of like giving animals legal rights. But there is also this movement to give places legal rights so that you could be sued by a river, for example, which I find oh, like no, no. See, that's a very important. That's a very important topic, and I think it's it, it's one that's what, way overdue. And uh, actually, one I've written about a little bit in short fiction. So, as an activist, we we um, approached those issues almost twenty years ago in in Indiana when we were fighting a golf course. Now the land is a, a nature preserve, but we. And thankfully, right now it is preserved, but we thought many times over the years, wouldn't it be great if we could give this spot rights so it doesn't need us to defend it. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. And there's some cool cases that are happening right now that are going to, I think, be very interesting to follow. So, so yeah, it's truly just like shit we think is interesting. (laughs) Yeah. But, but with one, but with a lot of these magical, realistic kind of like ideas, I do like how you bring it back to these things and or bring it back to the science and, 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 and come about it. But is there ever been one that was just too weird that you couldn't make it work or. We have or- killed a couple of episodes over the years, but largely, honestly, it's not usually because they're too weird. Those are ones that are like uh, almost easier in some ways. Like as long as we can come, as long as we, there's something interesting for us to talk about, then it's pretty easy for us to justify doing like, you know, what would happen if everybody woke up and was face blind is another one that we did where you couldn't recognize anybody's faces. Like there's interesting stuff to do there. The places that we've killed episodes have actually been when we were going to center the episode around a particular piece of research. And then in sort of doing the interviews with the scientists or digging into it, we kind of realized that like just the science wasn't there. We didn't want to do a whole episode premised around one piece of work that like just doesn't really hold water or at least like needs work confirming. But there are some exceptions to that. We did a a head transplant episode, which is not science that is, you know, reliable. But we talk on the episode about why we ended up doing it as opposed to just killing it. But yeah, there are a couple where it's like, you know, I saw like a really interesting sounding piece of research. We talked to the researcher and then are kind of like, ooh, I don't know if we want to like promote this research because I'm not sure that it's actually legit or like it's not, it might not hold up. And so we try to be good about that kind of thing in terms of like not making claims that some piece, some specific individual piece of research is like definitely true and is going to be the way forward if it's, especially around things like brains and behavior. I don't know. There's just some like, we have to, we try to be a little careful about that stuff. Yeah. Now, so how do you find, how do you pick the people that you're going to interview and do that process? And what are some of the coolest surprises that you've had with the interviews? And what are some of the um, weirdest ones, I would say? <laughs> like Ooh. Everyone is so cool. Like everyone's super nice. I feel like we, uh, one of the coolest things I think about being a journalist is that it gives you the right to just like email somebody and be like, hey, can I ask you some questions? And like, especially in the realm of science, they largely say yes. I used to work at ESPN at 30 for 30 doing sports documentaries and like retired athletes are way less fun to interview than scientists are and like science fiction writers, which is probably not shocking to hear. But like, especially when you contact a scientist who's like spent their whole lives doing this work and like often we're 
we're in like weird esoteric fields where they don't get a lot of media coverage, they're so excited to talk to you. And it's like really fun. And they'll talk your ear off, you know, especially historians. Historians, I feel like I've learned I have to book an extra half hour because they just have like a million things to say. Um, and they're super interesting. Like this is not a complaint. I love talking to historians. So I feel like largely it's just a joy to talk to people. And they often will raise questions that like I had never even thought about um, or just things that like, would never have occurred to me to ask. This isn't from Flash Forward, but one of my favorite interview stories was when I was early on, I was working at um, a local radio station in New York. We interviewed a chemist about something. He's a Nobel Prize winner. And that's part of why, like that his work was on this. And at the end of the interview, I always ask the same question, which is like, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about? Or like a question you thought I was going to ask you or like anything that you want to say at the end? Um, and he was like, thought for a second. And he goes, well, you could mention the fact that I have a Nobel prize. And I was like, oh yeah, no, we were going to, we were going to mention that. It just like, wasn't a thing I asked about. It was just very, he was very sweet. And it was like very cute for him to be like, by the way, it was I very, very funny. Thing. But Well, you yeah. know, it's, it's funny because you find even like, like Sean Carroll, who's a famous physicist is doing a podcast now because he's discovered like, Hey, I get to call these people up and they'll talk to me. And then, you know, he's doing interviews with, chess experts you know because he just finds it interesting and so it is cool like and i'm i'm obviously doing that with the podcast is like if i finish reading a book now i get to write the author and say i have an excuse to pick your brain about about you know hey josh mallerman your sequel to bird box was really good like tell me how you wrote it right and that's fun so anyways, so that was one of your coolest. Now, what was one of your weirdest experiences interviewing somebody? It could still be positive, but just downright yeah, strange. I think. I have, I mean, like being a like woman in journalism, like some of them are just not good. Like sometimes you talk to men who are just like b- bad people and yeah. mean. So I won't do those because those are not fun. I feel like there is something somewhat satisfying about letting a like, tech guy dig his own hole. You know what I mean? Like there is something like, like when you have someone who is just like committed to having a bad opinion and they just keep going. There's a interview that I did with the tech guy. And I, I, I genuinely try not to have shitty tech guys on the show just cause like, there's no reason. Like I'm not, I'm not there to like debunk bad tech opinions. It's like not yeah. the, the show's purposes. Um, but for one episode, it made sense to talk to this person because he was like the main proponent of an idea that I thought listeners are probably going to come across a lot. And I wanted them to kind of understand it a little bit better, you know, or for example, I, I did interview the head transplant guy who was just like, we'll just say anything. And like any question that you had, um, it was actually kind of impressive. Like any question you had about like the science or the logistics of of literal head transplants, like cutting a person's head off and transplanting it onto another body, which he claims he can do. Any question you might ask about that, he would have an answer like so quickly, but that made no sense. And he would just say it as if it was the most obvious thing in the world. And like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Just like that confidence to be like, oh yeah, no, 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 no problem. Here's, here's the answer to that. And you're like, okay. Like, you know, so yeah, Yeah, it was, uh, I think it might be, might be one of the weirder ones. (laughs) <laughs> Definitely. And, you know, we, we went back and forth about whether we should even interview that guy um, because like he's so clearly 
you know, full of shit. But because we were addressing, I mean, he is the person who claims he can do this. And I actually, frankly, I emailed him and I did not think that he would respond because he doesn't do a lot of press, but I guess he like was having a good day and decided to come on the show. So we, we did talk to him, um, but that was a weird one. That was a weird one where I was just like, I knew going into it was going to be weird. Um, just like having to kind of like ask him a bunch of questions that I knew he wasn't going to have answers to and then have him like yell about how I needed to like watch some video on the internet. I was like, okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, hey, when you approach a topic, sometimes you you know like, hey, I'm going to be talking to some weirdos and yeah. maybe on this topic, it'll it'll be more fun people and you know, one or the other, it's going to be a different experience. Yeah. But. 99% of the time, I feel like the interviews are a joy. And like, I don't, I mean, I don't do those interviews very often for a reason, because I don't feel like they're helpful. But every so often, I like kind of have to. Um, a good fun fact we learned in an interview recently is that people used to believe that um, psychopaths had the eyes of goats like literally the eyes of goats. And if you've ever seen a goat's eyeball, it does not look anything like a human eyeball. It has like a square pupil and is like very weird looking, Um, which seems like the kind of thing that you might notice in a person if they were to actually have that. Yeah, you might notice that, that. yeah. And it would make um, profilers at the FBI's job a lot easier. So easy, so easy, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, that would that would that would change things. Well, you know, yeah, there are like literal letters written back and forth amongst experts, being like, "We think that they have," and like, not not figuratively, the eyes of goats, literally the eyes of goats. <laughs> Interesting. Well, you know, hey, so when you get all these interviews gathered and you've done all these things, there's got to be a writing and production process. How long does the average episode take you from? okay, now we're focusing on this episode are you, or you're probably doing episodes overlapping, I'm sure, to a degree. Yeah, we work on like three to five episodes at a time, just kind of like doing the interviews and then scripting in chunks often. So it'll be, the show is usually structured in three parts, like sort of A block, B block, C block. And A block is usually like just, just explaining the premise of the episode. Like whatever the science tech, like, or non-science tech premise is kind of explaining that. The B block is usually like either a little bit of history to explain like what, how, where did this idea come from or kind of like the next step, like what's going to happen in the next 10 years or kind of what happens. And then C is usually our wild card where like, you know, we'll, so we did an episode about the end of the universe and talked to Katie Mack, um, who's an amazing physicist about the end of the universe based on her book. And so for A block, we just had Katie describing all the ways the universe could end. B, we had a psychiatrist talking about like how to cope with being anxious about the universe ending. And then C was, we had a party planner talk about like, if you had to plan the last party ever, because you knew the universe was ending, what would that be like? So that's kind of like the way that we tend to structure the show. So we'll often do the interviews that we know where they're going to go and we'll kind of script them in chunks and then Mm -hmm. sort of like work on production sort of like at a rolling basis. And maybe, maybe you said this and I, it kind of flo- floated over me, but so do you set up that structure ahead of time and then kind of pick interviews to go into those structures based on? Ideally. Yeah. Ideally, ideally we do. And then sometimes we'll, we'll know what our A block is. Cause that's usually the easy one to be like, explain the thing like of the episode. And then other times we'll kind of fish around for B and C and you know, it doesn't always line up exactly that way. So sometimes we'll do an interview and that person will say something and we're like, Oh, we should like do a section on that. And we should sort of like talk about that. So it's kind of like, 
it never is quite as, you know, methodical as you might like, uh, because like things change as you talk to people. Um, but yeah, we try to kind of go after people based on what we know we kind of want to talk about. Yeah. And, and look, even just doing dickheads and doing our Philip K. Dick podcast, we've had the experience of there's times where you talk to people. I mean, the thing about it is there's a lot of PKD fans, for example, who are obsessed with his Gnostic ideas and the pink laser beam of truth and that, that whole thing. And the, our hosts on this show, we're more into him as a writer and we don't really care about the spiritual Philip K. Dick stuff as much, but we have to interview the, some of those people sometimes. And we got to take them seriously, even though like we think it's kind of loopy and weird. So sometimes, you know, we're in the same boat as you when you're doing these interviews and when you structure shows, a lot of times you have to think about, am I going to lose people for our, like us, if we go too far into this, this avenue. And so I would figure that a lot of times with, with flash forward, you, you can't get too far away from the science. If you're doing those things, you have to kind of look at the balance of those things. Yeah. We try to, to balance it, it out. Listen, right. Yeah. I think that like, you know, uh, it's funny when I was an intern at Radiolab, uh, it was right around the time when Radiolab was shifting away from being like almost all science to doing a lot more stuff that was like non-science. And one of the jobs as an intern is to respond to emails from listeners. And many listeners were very upset that Radiolab was starting to like tackle non-science ideas um, and non-science topics. And so I kind of always had that in the back of my head when I was doing Flash Forward. And we tried to go into it kind of, even in the first season, there are episodes that are not about science. There's an episode about what would it be like if we eliminated borders, right? There's an episode about what would it be like if gender was more like hair color, where like you kind of notice it about somebody, but it's not you know, necessarily the most defining thing about them. And you can change it kind of like however you want. And so we've always done those episodes. And I think that I do think about um, the layout within a season where it's like, if we have two episodes that are about more social issues in a row, then we'll probably then want to do a more techie one. Right. But I've tried to, even from the beginning, make it clear that like flash forward is about the future, which isn't the synonymous with science and technology. Right. Cause like many things are about the future. The future isn't yes. just science and tech. Um, and so trying to kind of always make that very clear and message that very strongly from the very beginning, I think helps. And I know that there are listeners who will see some of those and they'll be like, I'm going to skip that one because they're not interested. And I also know there are listeners who skip the science and tech ones because I don't care about those ones. So I think it's a, I've tried to establish a balance. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm waiting for the episode on the future of punk rock and, and, and music, but well, I just, I'll call you for that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have thought a lot about that topic and, uh, what is the future of punk rock is punk dead? Well, no punk. Well, punk's always kind of been a zombie to, to a certain degree. I'll tell you another person who's written a lot about it would be a good person to talk to for that is, um, John Shirley who was co-screenwriter of the crow and he, uh, William Gibson called him cyberpunk patient zero. He and I have worked together on stuff before. So he and I are friends, but John, you know, was writing about the future of punk rock as in in science fiction as far back as 1978 right so so i think about a lot with him you know you know we've we've talked a lot about you know it's weird it's really weird because you try to think of the most extreme music and try to try to extrapolate it out and mix it with technology it's 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 an interesting thought experiment let me say for science fiction writers but 
I digress. And this is about flash forward. Nice try to interview me for a second. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you, you usually work on the, I mean, you probably plan out, map out whole seasons at the beginning, right? We do. Or- we map about 10 episodes at a time and it's a 20 episode season. So we do about half and half just because we want to leave a couple of openings, you know, just in case we do encounter something. And this happens all the time where we're like, be in a research mode for an episode and we'll encounter some idea and we're like, Ooh, this is super interesting. And we should do an episode about that separately, as opposed to like trying to like shove it into one of the episodes that we have coming up. So we actually have an episode coming up in a couple of weeks. That is like that, where it was like, we were working on something else and got really interested in this other thing. And at first we were like, Oh, maybe we'll do like a segment on it in the episode. And then we were like, no, 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 this should just be its own whole separate episode. So we try to leave some room at the end to make sure we can fit those in. Well, you know, and what's interesting too, is when you listen, like, and I'll, I'll use the underground episode because I listened to it this morning as an example, like there's some really cool, like every once in a while too, another thing that happens on flash forward is you drop like a, like a fact, like, like in that episode, the, deepest hole that's ever been dug in Russia, you know, is 40,000 feet below. And that's super interesting. The, the, the city that's underground in Australia, that that's interesting. Um, the, the guy who's trying to design an underground Singapore, which is fascinating because anybody, I, I would recommend to anybody who wants to, to, who thinks in future terms, on YouTube, you can put in like 4K drives of Singapore if you've never visited. But even just watch, just watching somebody drive around Singapore, you can see that this is a city that's thinking about the future, right? So the idea that Singapore is building down, anyways, uh, very, very fascinating. And so like, I'm just taking this example of just this one episode that I just listened to, that these are like little things that get my science fiction brain thinking so um, one of the reasons why, okay, now I'm, I'm going to show my cards here. Uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast is I do have science fiction writers who listen to my podcast and listen to because like I interview other writers and they like to hear that thing. I think Flash Forward is a really good podcast for science fiction writers to listen to because it's one that <clears throat> there's times when I'm writing my science fiction that takes place in the future. For example, my buddy Anthony and I just finished a screenplay that takes place mostly on a space elevator. Well, let me tell you, I listened to a flash forward episode that had people talking about space elevators. And so I had, it's something that I've now like heard experts talk about through, through your show. And, and it's something that I can refer back to, or it puts pieces in my brain. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on here is I, I, it's not, you're well-praised podcast, Wired Magazine, New York Magazine, New Statesman, Business Insider, The Globe and Mail, New York Times. That's, that's, that's a serious thing. But I also, I'm putting my stamp of approval is that I think this is something science fiction write, writers should be listening to on a regular basis, just to be thinking about the future and to hear other people's ideas on it. Now, do you, have you thought about the influence that you've had on science fiction writers? Is that something that you've thought about before or is this and I always like some... hearing it yeah. yeah I always love when like you know I'll get emails sometimes from people I know that sometimes the show gets used in schools um as kind of like a prompt for like you know university students or even high school students um and they did uh one professor did email me being like I used flash forward as like 
basically the students could pick any episode and they had to write some science fiction based on sort of the ideas in the episode. And so I got to read some of those and that was like incredibly cool and very sweet. That um, is awesome. And I like, it's really cool. Um, especially cause some of them were like really good. And I was like, wow, you should submit this. It's like a really good short story that is like, right. ten, like I could take no credit for the story being good. Like it's a like based on like an idea that, you know, whatever, but, um, but yeah, I, I love hearing that people find the ideas in the e episodes sort of like these nuggets, right? Because like it is, we pack a lot in the 50 ish minutes that are in each episode. And like, mm -hmm. in many cases we can't explore them further, right? Like you could do a whole segment on some of the stuff, like you mentioned that like is in the show. And we do also post like pretty extensive show notes on the website, just to make sure that like, if you do want to learn more about anything, like here's like 35 links that you can you go to, to like, you know, learn about it. And so I do hope that people use it as kind of like a jumping off point or like inspiration for something. And so I always like hearing that people do that. I think if I were to think about it when I was actually making the show, it would stress me out too much. <laughs> it's like, I like no Yeah, that was my last but... question was the pressure of the praise, because you've gotten a lot of, this is some pretty big praise that you've gotten out there. And, and, you know, at least two other science fiction writers that I know who I've turned on to the podcast, uh, one who discovered it because I was on there and listened to it and then has been listening as long as that with me. And it's a, it's a show that, that many years talk. now. Yeah. Yeah. It's been years. So, and it's funny because when the podcast, we think of them, we think of them as a new medium, but there's some podcasts that I've been listening to for a decade, which is just bizarre, you know, or you really feel it when you have like a host of a podcast talking about their kids growing up. And then you, you remember like, oh, I remember when they took a break because their kid was born and now like their kid is a yeah. 12 years old or something. And it's like, yeah. whoa, you know, time is, is passing, but, but no, no, I, I think I, it's, it's cool. And I, I could see where you would feel some pressure because of just the kind of accolades that you've gotten as a podcast. But I think one of the things that's great is that there's a real consistency that, that, um, that you two have for it's it's julia julia's your, julia julia yeah. yeah 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 there's a consistency that you guys have 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 reached that's really cool on the show and so i appreciate that <laughs> anyways it's so. fun i feel like i don't i don't think very much about the pressure part or like the like you know getting pressed or like kind of trying to like be on top lists or whatever it is just because like I don't know. I feel like that way madness lies. Like you just can't, I don't know. I feel like the show is at its best when Julia and I are like having fun and learning things that we didn't know before. And Julia has been great. They have been working on the show now for a little over a year, like a year and a half now, like have really brought so many cool ideas. And I owe them, like, I was actually considering ending the show. Cause I was like, I'm tired. It's a lot for one person to produce. Like maybe I'll move on to something else. Um, and they've been like amazing to bring in and kind of like really inject some like new ideas and um just like new energy into the show but yeah I that's feel amazing. like if you think yeah. too much about it that's like I don't know I feel like if you overthink it in that sense and this in the context of like oh like what is wired gonna write about like whatever like that's I don't know that to me like I can't I can't go there in my brain otherwise I'll get too stressed out so I mostly just try and have fun <laughs> well you know and and it happens that way when we started dickheads I expected like a dozen people to listen right it wasn't like and now when we have episodes that have like a thousand plays or, or whatever, and, and, you know, sometimes if you have an episode like do androids dream of electric sheep or Ubic or, right. or, um, 
yeah, like we did Ubik with Stephen Graham Jones and he's a best-selling author. So like, you know, that episode obviously had like a lot of plays. And then I would sit back and look at one that, and I'd be like, man, there's only 200 plays of this maze of death episode. I really like that novel. And then I say to myself, wait, at the beginning, I was like, if 12 people listen, I'll be excited. I can't, you know, split hairs about, (laughs) oh no, there's a hundred less people listen to this episode or whatever. Like, why did a hundred people less listen? It's, it's, you're right. There's madness there. And you just, yeah, it's just, you get, yeah. When I used to work at the Atlantic, uh, you have access to this dashboard that shows like every piece and how many people are currently looking at each link and like all of the like analytics that you get in the back end of a, a big website. And I tried to just not look at it because like, it is so easy to just get super obsessed with those numbers as a metric of what's good. And that's not true. Right. And like, objectively, we all know that that's not true, but it's so easy when you have that data in front of you to suddenly feel like, Oh God, like this isn't performing or whatever. Um, and like some of the episodes that are my favorite episodes are not the ones that do the best. Right. Like, and that's just like, that's how it is. Right. People, everybody reacts to things differently. Also like it's a pandemic. People are listening weirdly. Like people don't have their commutes, like, you know, numbers are going to be weird. And so I try as much as possible to just focus on like, am I interested in this topic? Am I having a good time? <laughs> That's all I can ask for. All right. So I'm going to use your, your question. Rose, is there anything I missed that you <laughs> wanted to talk about? Because I feel like I've given everybody a pretty good in, look into, into Flash Forward and why they should listen to it. And you know, I know you've got more listeners than me, so it may be the other way around that we may be, but, um, but at the same time, like I'm, I'm hoping to open you up to just a few new people that maybe specifically are coming to you as science fiction writers and as, and, 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 well, and look, every minute we're traveling into the future. So, so happening right now. And right if you're, yeah, unless, (laughs) unless you're specifically writing a period piece, you're always writing about the future, right? So people should always think about that. What did I miss? Like, what what's the aspect of doing flash forward that that most people would never think is an aspect of doing this particular show? I don't know if there's, I don't know about things that people wouldn't think of, but like, I think that in general, people there's a general sense that like podcast is podcasting is podcasting is easy. I don't know if you've ever seen like people are like, Oh, you just get a microphone and you just talk. And uh, like every episode of flash forward takes 70 to 80 hours to assemble just like research, interviewing, cutting tape, you know, like going through and making all everything. So like, and this is not to say that like, and then that's true of many podcasts that people might listen to. It is not just flash forward. We are not like an exemplary or like no. an outlier in that regard. And no, even, interview um, shows are easier to do than. But even like, interview shows, often, if you listen to interview shows, there are so many invisible cuts that are being made that like you don't hear. And that's if it sounds effortless, the, the more effortless it sounds, the more work has gone into it, basically. Well, yeah, because when you become a podcast editor, you, you know, you become destroyer of us and ums and like you spend a lot of time and people don't realize you know like your immense hatred for your own verbal tics and things like that yeah and I just encourage everybody who listens to podcasts uh, to just like listen to the number of people that are in the credits of podcasts so like you know and just like the daily for example which I think is a show that a lot of people listen to if you listen to the number of people that are in the credits of the daily it's like 35 people. Um, yeah. and that like, 
is like, and so when I think that just like recognizing that pot, not just flash forward, like podcasts are hard to do. Give, give podcasters a little more credit. I think Good podcasts are hard to do. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. true. Good podcasts are hard to do. Right. If a podcast is just literally you sitting down with a buddy and like talking for three hours, that's probably not going to get a lot of people to want to listen. Well, right. And, and a podcast like flash forward or the daily is a good, is a great example. These are produced podcasts that are, have segments and are edited together and they're not, they're not just like hit record and, and put it up and, and for anyone who thinks that I do that, I will tell you, I crush all the us and ums as much as I can. And I spend a lot of time doing that. So uh, I don't know how to do that in the videos. So those show up in the YouTube, but <laughs> I don't know how to do that yet. But because um, there's faces and things like that. Much know, harder. Yeah. Much yeah. harder. I can do that with audio. I'm letting so. you off the hook for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is I just, I just don't have the video skills yet. So nonetheless, well, yeah. And I appreciate it because flash forward is, sounds great. It always sounds great. Just doing, I'm sure just doing the uh, science fiction radio parts are a lot of work in, in their own right. So, so um, you know, that, that, that's a cool thing. And I think you guys are always thoughtful. Flash forward is a thoughtful podcast. It's, 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 um, it's, it's really, um, well done. So on that note, I will uh, tell my listeners that they can, you can get Flash Forward at, uh, you know, wherever you find podcasts. You have a great website and you have a book. So let's tell the folks about the book. Oh, and, I should have uh, grabbed a copy to show off. Normally, oh, I have one. Ta-da. Yeah, and I didn't ask you about the book. So what, what went into the book? Like, um, yeah, there's a lot of show uh, notes turned into. It's a, it's a comic book. Uh, every episode is a different comic by a different artist. Um, oh, and wow. then it's followed by essays by me about that future. So it's kind of similar to the show, the way that the show is structured, where there's like a fictional element at the top and then sort of like more journalistic at the back. It's the same thing. So it's 12 different comic artists doing 12 different comics and then an essay from me afterwards. And it was really fun. A lot of work to put together because wrangling 12 different artists and like doing 12 different... Oh, yeah. 16 page comics is like a whole thing that I learned how to do, which is very cool and very fun. I'm really proud of it. Um, and so it is also available on the website, on the Flashboard website. And um, I think it's very cool and fun. And collaborating with the artists was so amazing. And they all did such a good job because they all wrote their own fictional stories for it. So well, all the ideas come from them. Yeah, I need to check it out because when I, I, I remember when, when it came out, I requested it at our library and then I, I haven't checked it out. So that's bad me, but I made sure they had it because I thought it was really cool. And um, always got to support my favorite podcasts. So uh, Rose, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's really cool to, to see under the hood of, uh, you know, one of my favorite shows. And I do want to encourage science fiction writers to, to check out Flash Forward. I have uh, a few ideas for, for some interviews I think you should do. I'll get, save those for offline. But um, I really do appreciate the time. And I hope uh, listeners will go check out Flash Forward. So thank, thank you. you. This is fun.